Imagine a world where innovation knows no bounds. At BAE Systems Fast Labs, we're pioneering advanced technology and defense research, shaping the future of safety and security. Explore our website to uncover a realm of cutting-edge projects, collaborations, and visionary thinkers. Whether you're a tech enthusiast, a defender of freedom, or just curious, Fast Labs is where groundbreaking solutions are born. Join us and be part of the future today. Visit www.baesystems.com slash fastlabs. Welcome to From the Crow's Nest, a podcast on electromagnetic spectrum operations, or EMSO. I'm your host, Ken Miller, Director of Advocacy and Outreach for the Association of Old Crows. Thank you for listening. In today's episode, I'm very excited to be joined by Congressman Jim Langevin. He is Chairman of the House Armed Services Subcommittee on Cyber, Innovative Technologies, and Information Systems, also known as the City Subcommittee. Before we begin, I would like to thank our sponsor, Northrop Grumman Corporation. Northrop Grumman provides full-spectrum superiority. Their innovative, multifunction, interoperable solutions ensure warfighters have full-spectrum dominance to make real-time decisions no matter the environment or domain. Learn more at ngc.com EW. I'd like to welcome Congressman Jim Langevin to the Crow's Nest today. Uh, he is a senior member of the House Armed Services Committee, and as I mentioned in the opening, he is also chairman of the City Subcommittee. He is actively engaged on a range of technology issues, including electromagnetic spectrum operations, directed energy, and cybersecurity. He represents the 2nd District of Rhode Island, and he is in his 11th term in office. I've worked with his office for several years now. Uh, He has always been one of the most approachable members of Congress you'll find on Capitol Hill. He has a tremendous personal story of overcoming a, a tragedy of a gun accident when he was 16 years old that left him paralyzed, a quadriplegic. And uh, he's used this to become a strong voice on a range of issues outside of national security as well. So I greatly appreciate the job he's done, and I'm so happy to have him here with me today. Thank you, and welcome, Congressman Lanchman. Thank you. Thank you. I find these issues all very challenging. And at the end of the day, the more I understand it, uh, hopefully, uh, the, the more I can do to help strengthen our national security and give our warfighters uh, every, every advantage so we're never sending them into a fair fight. Excellent. So I want to start start off, you know, talking about the House Armed Services Committee. Uh, you are the chairman of the Subcommittee on Cyber Innovative Technologies and Information Systems, and this is a new subcommittee this year. You were formerly the chairman of the Intelligence Emerging Threats and Capabilities Subcommittee last year, um, and so has kind of basically redesignated that old subcommittee and broke it into two. And and you have. The, the cyber, the, what we call the city subcommittee. And then the other one is, I guess, intelligence and special ops. I was wondering if you could walk us through the, the rationale for breaking apart or redesignating the IETC committee from last Congress into these two new subcommittees. And what is the role this new subcommittee has and what is your jurisdiction? Yeah, so the rationale behind the changing the subcommittees and, and having two is that the the Subcommittee that uh, under the current jurisdiction was, is uh, with the, the cyber and innovative technologies information systems is growing in importance and uh, and capabilities and it didn't seem to be slowing down anytime soon and we need to be able to to give the the uh, attention the focus 
that these issues really deserve. And last year's NDAA, by, just by way of example, had over 70 cyber provisions in, in there, so much so that we had to create a new cyber title in the bill for the first time. There were also dozens, dozens of AI provisions, and our success in, in great power competition really relies on sophisticated, coordinated digital capabilities. So has needs, I uh, believe, dedicated staff and resources to face this challenge and, and exhibit the oversight for our men and women in uniform that they deserve. And again, you know, our goal is to try to master these, these technologies, identify where we have an advantage as a country and, and grow that advantage. But remember that also our enemies and adversaries are investing heavily in technology and their electronic warfare capabilities to undermine our advantage where we've made such heavy investments over the years. And and we need to identify where they have undermined our advantage and we need to turn that that around in our favor. Again, we should never send our warfighters into a fair fight and that is our, our, our goal. So Yeah, so well I, I wanted to, you know, quickly you know build on that. You've had a number of interesting hearings to start off this Congress. So one on, on electromagnetic spectrum operations, you just had one on dis, disinformation warfare ideas and cyber. Heading into this year, particularly with an f- eye on uh, the FY 2022 defense budget, what are some of your specific priorities that you're looking to direct the subcommittee's attention to? Well, so we have jurisdiction over cybersecurity, cyber operations and forces. We're going to focus on artificial intelligence, machine learning, information technology and operations, software acquisition, electromagnetic spectrum and warfare and, and science and technology. So. Those are those are our, the areas of our jurisdiction under the, under the subcommittee. I'm particularly interested in obviously cyber and both uh, offensive and defensive capabilities. But uh, then uh, directed energy is another thing. We I believe that directed energy is at an inflection point, and we've got to do more to get it out of the labs and into the hands of the, the warfighters. And then the electromagnetic spectrum uh, related issues. Again, this those are the areas, that, especially EW, where you know, we make use of these extraordinary, exquisite capabilities, uh, very heavily technology-centric, but and given our warfighters amazing advantages, you know, everything from whether it's ISR to the sophisticated weapon systems that we've developed, uh, even uh, cyber capabilities, our enemies and adversaries know this, and they have been invested heavily over the years to try to undermine our advantage. And in, in a lot of ways, our EW capabilities had atrophied over the years, and and we're 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 changing that around. We're 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 making them more robust as we go forward. So those are the kind of the, the problem set areas that I'm going to continue to focus on. In addition to your subcommittee, and this is an area the AOC has worked a lot with your office. You also have a, a leading role in three very important caucuses: to the Cybersecurity uh, Directed Energy Caucus and then the EW Working Group, which basically allows you to lead on each of these issues from a, from a caucus standpoint. But what, what role, as a subcommittee chair, what role do some of these caucuses play or can play in terms of advancing the issue in Congress or raising awareness? Yeah. So, you know, in all three of these areas are, are vital to national security initiatives, but uh, you know, not necessarily well understood by lawmakers and their staff. And, and so... The role of the, the, the caucus is basically to educate lawmakers and staff and really garner support for uh, these programs. Uh, I know that uh, we sponsored two DE caucuses, uh, caucus events this year. We had program updates and uh, on, uh, DE weapons and, and 
the strategic context. And, and it allows us to advocate for, for policies to push the DOD to develop and field these, these new technologies. So again, all three are vital to, to national security. And, and I was proud to, I'm proud to lead uh, or co-lead all three of them. Hello, everyone. I want to take a short break to thank BAE Systems Fast Labs for the continued support for our From the Crow's Nest podcast. I am pleased to be here today with Bill Watson, Chief Scientist at BAE Systems Fast Labs. Bill, it's great to be here with you. Now, BAE Systems Fast Labs is BAE Systems Research and Development and Production Organization. Can you tell us a little bit about Fast Labs as well as your background? Yes, and thank you for having me. Uh, BAE Systems Fast Labs is dedicated to innovating disruptive next-generation solutions for the critical defense and intelligence challenges. Of course, electronic warfare is one of our key focus areas, but in addition to that, we also do research in autonomy and AI, sensing and response, advanced microelectronics, communications, and navigation. I've been working in the RF, that is radio frequency research community, for over 20 years, a short time in the United States Air Force, followed by specific research and development. My work in the last 20 years has been singularly focused on DARPA research and within the last 10 years at BAE Systems Fast Labs specifically. Technology we work on spans sensor processing through high-level sense making up to tactical and operational level autonomy and decision-making support. And one of the key differentiators about BAE Fast Labs is the research that we do uh, is intended to find its way to benefit the warfighter. This has been an important topic through many of our recent episodes here on From the Crow's Nest. Can you talk a little bit more about that technology and for our audience, how does it change or affect our EW capabilities that we're trying to field? In our work with leading uh, DoD customers like DARPA or AFRL, we focus on developing technologies that will uh, advance future solutions from overcoming today's challenges to developing technologies never before thought to be possible. We then transition our technology to feelable products to benefit our warfighters through partnership with BA Systems Electronic Systems product lines. As a specific example, I thought I'd use a movie you may or may not be familiar with. It was called Battle Los Angeles. It was from 2011. And in that movie, aliens had, had invaded. And what the characters in the movie found is that whenever they keyed their microphones on their radios, they could be easily geolocated and targeted. What the movie presented as science fiction for us is, in fact, science fact. This is the type of technology that we work on and exist today where the physics meets the real world. This sounds like absolutely fascinating work. What is the next area that you see for research and development? And if anyone is interested in learning more, how can they reach out to you? Well, we can't say too much because of the sensitivity of our work at classification levels. But in Fast Labs, we are always working on the future state. No matter what the future threats are, we will continue to focus on solving the hardest problems to benefit the warfighter. If you're interested in more information about Fast Labs, you can connect with us on our website at basystems.com slash fastlabs. Well, thank you, Bill, for joining me here on From the Crow's Nest. And now it's time to get back to our show. So I just wanted to talk a little bit about directed energy, too. You've been following this for many years, and you've seen kind of the growth of this area as it's really starting to enter operations. Can you talk about where we're at today with directed energy and where are we succeeding and what are some of the challenges we have moving forward? I grew up in the in the in the Reagan era, right? And I still remember the famous the famous strategic defense initiative speech. And you know, Ronald Reagan 
did what presidents do, right? They, you know, they, they set out this bold vision and, you know, this is uh, the directed energy uh, missile defense shield that was going to protect the United States from uh, ICBM attacks from the Soviet Union. Now, at the time, it turned out there was a lot of hype and that the technology was not nearly uh, mature enough at all to even come close to that, that vision. But it did rally, you know, our greatest, you know, our, our bright scientists and military thinkers to move in that direction. So, uh, you know, here I am all these years later and directed energy is really coming into its own. It's maturing at a rapid pace and it's currently really at a at an inflection point. The technology is mature and it's showing real operational benefits, especially against drones. It's already been demonstrated, but that's a, a small mindset in some ways that, that fixes today's problems. The, you know, this is where Congress really needs to step in and help. We, we need to convince the services that DE is the way of the future. Uh, it's the way forward for things like missile defense, defending the, the fleet of our, our ships, our, our sailors and Marines. And, and we need to get these systems fielded across the military services. So this is what, you know, what we're, we're focusing on. We want to get the technology over the valley of death if you will, because it uh, it can be a game changer. Uh, enemies and adversaries investing in things like hypersonics and also, you know, short, medium and long range uh, missiles that they can hold us, and our forces, uh, fleet at risk. We need to change that around. You know, these and the, you know, obviously the kinetic interceptors are very expensive. We can utilize directed energy. We're talking about pennies per shot versus millions per shot. So we definitely bend the cost curve in our favor and just enhance our capabilities across, across the spectrum. But you, you mentioned the Valley of Death, and you know, I think one of the challenges that I've seen with directed energy over the years is, you know, it's it's has a very strong track record in the labs. But when you really get into operationalizing directed energy, you have to deal with what we call like the the dot mill PF, the doctrine, organization, leadership, the training, the personnel. There's a lot that goes into operationalizing the capability. How is DOD positioned on that front? Do you think, uh, how, what do you think, what role do you think Congress has in working with DOD to make sure that, you know, we have the, the manpower, we have the training, the skill set, the policy and doctrine, all that to support really pushing DE into the future and operationalizing it? But you raise a good point, right? Because you got to, you, you have to feel the equipment. You got to get into the hands of the warfighter, let them work with it. You got to you know, incorporate it into our con ops, and uh, you know, a number of the planning and you know how you incorporate it, and, and as a complement, other technologies. So, you know, the services really need to incorporate DE systems into future design plans. They need to articulate operational plans, identify and employ DE capabilities. Showing the Navy as a, a promising start by mentioning the, the need uh, to design future ships around DE systems. But we've already seen that it has, it's not just a science project anymore. This has real utility for shooting down drones. We've already done it in real world tests. You've got the, I was excited when they put the first laser demonstrator on the USS Ponce. It's, a, it's only a 30 kilowatt system. It's not you know suitable for missile defense, but you know it showed utility, it showed it shooting down low flying or slow flying uh, planes or drones. And then you've got the, um, 150 kilowatt system that's being put on the uh, the USS Ponce, and so uh, there again, you know, when you when you get into the 150 to 300 kilowatt range, you're talking about utility for things like ship defense, missile defense, and it's exciting. We're at the cutting edge. 
providing full-spectrum superiority across all domains. That's defining possible. Giving warfighters the freedom to act across the spectrum, especially in highly contested battle spaces, can seem impossible. At Northrop Grumman, we've pushed the boundaries of possible across the spectrum for decades. Today, our cutting-edge, interoperable, multifunction technologies are a revolutionary leap in spectrum dominance. How revolutionary? Imagine detecting the precise location of an adversary long before they ever detect you. Or better yet, denying or degrading an adversary's system without them being able to do a thing about it. Your freedom to shape the spectrum is an overwhelming advantage in every domain. An advantage made possible by Northrop Grumman's unique, software-defined, open, safe, secure architecture solutions. It's all part of our commitment to ensure our warfighters have full-spectrum dominance to make real-time decisions, no matter the environment. That's defining possible. Learn more at ngc.com EW. I want to shift our focus to uh, electromagnetic spectrum operations. The subcommittee had had a hearing featuring uh, Brian Clark from Hudson Institute and uh, Dr. Connolly from Mercury, as well as GAO. Um, it raised a lot of issues about where DOD is going in terms of governance and and, and fielding capabilities. What were some of the takeaways that you had from the uh, from that hearing back in March? Well, I think some of the takeaways were that you know DOD has made uh, significant progress in closing gaps. And in our EW capabilities and maintaining advantages, obviously more work needs to be done in things like modernizing systems and capabilities, joint interoperability, develop right management structure, strategy and resources in, in DOD. But, uh, you know, we're, we're you know, showing steady progress there. And I, I want to make sure that we continue to, to stay on uh, the right path. The GAO testified, they had a report back in December and testified on that at the hearing. And they mentioned that basically, you know, in the past, we have the DOD EMS superiority strategy out that's currently, uh, they're getting ready to release the implementation plan for that. But DOD's history with effectively implementing strategies is a, is a little bit up for debate. They, they haven't always done a good job, particularly on the EW front. What can Congress do? What are some of the things that Congress can do or, or the Armed Services Committee, your subcommittee can do to hold DOD accountable to fully implementing the EMS superiority strategy? Well, first, we can put a single office in charge. Congress has already taken the first step by directing DOD to find a single entity to be responsible for MSO. Ideally, it's a, it's a policy person, but we also need to resource that office appropriately. Those are the things that I'm going to continue to focus on the, you know, this this session of Congress and, and, and beyond. You mentioned earlier when we were talking about direct energy, the Valley of Death, and that, that's, you know, getting programs from R&D over to procurement is, is a very important issue. And kind of related to that is also how is, is how we diversify the limited resources we have on key capabilities. You can only fund so much. We have the, the new budget coming out, the FY 2022 budget request coming out hopefully soon. And of course, Congress's role in developing the annual authorization bill. How can Congress help DOD invest in, in future MSO technologies, diversify that into some of the capabilities that you've talked about today? Yeah, so, so basically we need flexible, agile systems that are software centric. You know, historically uh, we, we've been hardware focused uh, while the software is kind of an afterthought. <laughs> that needs to change. You know, we need interoperability between new and existing platforms and we need to leverage innovation in the in the private sector wherever possible. So, you know, things that are plug and play, if you will, you know, allowing for software upgrades, flexibility, these are the things that 
you know, what we need to focus on in the future. That's not the way it is right now, but we're going to change that. During the rounds of questions with the other members of the subcommittee, one of the topics that I was pleased to hear come up so frequently was that on kind of workforce and STEM and education, that, that aspect of the issue, because I think oftentimes you just look at just the technology and we forget about the people behind it that are making that technology and have to operate it and learn it. So how, how do we uh, improve education training and, and sustainment programs for an EMSO workforce, with skilled engineers, physicists, programmers, and operators? Well, you're, you're spot on to, to focus on workforce because it's not only about the developing the technology, but it's about the people that are doing the, the research and development and then, then ultimately using the technology. So we've got to invest more in, in career and technical education programs, the CTE, through all levels of schooling to create a technical workforce uh, with MSO understanding. And we need to uh, attract and retain foreign, and te- foreign talent as well. So one of the things I've, I've put forward, uh, hoping to see progress in getting it into the NDAA this year, is the National Security Innovation Pathway Act. And that would allow the Secretary of Defense to designate certain areas that are important in national security and put them, uh, the people that after they you know, work hard and they've studied here, that put them on a path to, uh, to citizenship to, so we keep that talent here in the, uh, in the United States. But, you know, we, we need public and private sector competitiveness. Attracting talent to work in government is a matter of national security. We lose talent of people due to bureaucratic barriers like security clearances. So we need to change that and need to really upskill the current talent, encourage service members and DOD civilians to, to take AI and coding and programming and, and cybersecurity courses. That, you know, we leverage that, that, that talent, grow that talent in the, in the military going forward. And a lot of that also has to get into our schools, high school, college, you know, through STEM programs and, and other you know, private sector, public sector partnerships. Is this something you're looking into is how to kind of improve or facilitate these STEM partnerships and opportunities to really get some of the young people that have the ability to really dive into this, uh, this technical matter very early on and, and get them trained up? What are some of the things that we can do to kind of help out the STEM partnerships out there? So definitely having growing this talent at the, at the youngest ages is, is, is important. So that's, again, a big believer in, in career and technical education programs, K through 12 education, you know, and you look at defense and commercial sector partnerships where we're most effective when the two sectors collaborate on training a skilled workforce. The submarine industrial base, you know, really epitomizes this model. We, you know, we're going to have to hire 17,000 new skilled workers for the Columbia class program. The Navy, Congress, and private industry, I know right now, are working together to set up that, that training pipeline today. And it's going to impact us well into the future. You mentioned uh, the NDAA and Congress. Uh, obviously, the, sub- the committee is starting its its annual defense budget process. But uh, you're, we're still, of course, waiting for the official uh, president's request of the budget, which um, I, I assume is, is going to be coming here in a few weeks. Can you talk to us a little bit about what process, what is the process going to look like moving forward here? What is the subcommittee schedule or what is the committee schedule for addressing the FY 2022 uh, defense budget? Yeah, right now, we, you know, we'd, we'd be in the middle of posture hearings. That's what we were expecting we would be, but we haven't, we don't have the budget yet. So it's a little difficult to do posture hearings without a budget. 
yeah, we're hoping to get the, the president's budget soon and then uh, Secretary Austin uh, testifying before Congress uh, coming up in a, uh, in, a, in a few weeks. And then, you know, moving forward, it's going to be about the uh, doing the markup of the NDAA. But we're looking at probably, you know, we're talking July or perhaps even September before we actually get to markup. So it's going to be a little later than usual. Yeah, that's quite a bit unprecedented. But I mean, this is obviously a, every year is a little bit different. I don't believe it's ever been that late as, for quite a while, at least. Yeah, I can't remember being that late either. We're going to have to just adapt and, and, and push through. With that, you know, a, a lot of there's been a lot of conversation looking forward. You know, obviously, we're coming out of this COVID new reality and a lot of other competing priorities for limited federal resources. And there's already been talk, you know, we about not being able to continue the growth in defense spending that we've experienced in the years past, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there's going to be significant cuts, but like there is going to have to be some contraction probably in the future years. What are some of the areas that you think Congress and DOD need to focus on that can help us bridge this uncertainty between potentially contracting a defense budget, but also meeting meeting the requirements for future warfare? There's no doubt that defense budgets will likely be under pressure uh, in in coming years. But, you know, I, I think we just have to get smarter about how we're spending our, our defense dollars, make sure we're, we're getting the best capabilities, you know, at, uh, at an appropriate cost. And, you know, HASC is going to have to, military will have to divest from legacy systems that are not effective in great power competition. Just by way of example, the Marine Corps decommissioned its uh, tank battalions and invested in, in naval strike missiles. So the, the city subcommittee, the city incorporate commercial off-the-shelf technology where we can. Uh, we're going to update our software acquisition policies to accelerate and improve how the DOD acquires software. And, you know, even as the budgets remain flat, we can't stop the investing in emerging technology. Bottom line is, if we don't figure it out, you know, our adversaries will. Emerging technologies like AI or quantum they're going to be game changers in the in cyber and space and, and the spectrum domains. So we've got to make sure that uh, you know, these these technologies are harnessed by us, developed, and, and, and that you know, we maintain our, our competitive and qualitative edge. One of the policies of the new Biden administration as it pertains to the defense budget is the effort to bring overseas contingency operation funding, OCO funding, back into the base budget. They've been separated for almost 20 years and basically, OCO funding has been separate from any effort to either balance the budget or keep defense spending to a certain cap level. I think it's good that we actually are bringing this back together so we have more accountability and transparency in the budget. I want to get your take on this idea of bringing OCO and base budget back together. Yeah, I, I definitely we, we should make every effort to do just that. OCO, I think, has been too often used as a fund to you know, get things in that, that weren't in the base budget. And I, I think bringing it uh, back together into mainstream budget is a better way to go looking forward. I want to thank you for uh, joining me for the episode. I really, greatly appreciate your time. Well, thank you. It's been a great discussion and I appreciate your interest in all these topics and look forward to future conversations. Sounds great. Thank you so much. That will conclude this episode of From the Crow's Nest. Thank you, Congressman Langevin, for joining us. AOC appreciates all the hard work you do in Congress. I also want to thank our episode sponsor, Northrop Grumman Corporation. Northrop Grumman's multifunction interoperable solutions create full spectrum superiority for our warfighters across all domains. Learn more at ngc.com/ew. 
And finally, this week from the crow's nest is set up here at our AOC SEMA 2021 conference. We are currently working on a special episode of interviews with speakers and exhibitors that we will be releasing next week. We also have a much anticipated release of our sister podcast, The History of Crows, coming out on June 2nd. Please join us for these special episodes. And as always, thank you for listening. Fast Labs, powered by BAE Systems, is at the forefront of advanced technology and defense research, development, and production. They're pushing boundaries, breaking barriers, and innovating for a safer world. Check them out at www.baesystems.com/fastlabs.